Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. Today, Dan Moore interviews Joseph Mariano. Joseph joined the Direct Selling Association, DSA, in 1985 and assumed the role of president in 2011. Previously, he was executive vice president and chief operating officer. DSA is the 109-year-old not-for-profit national trade organization representing approximately 250 direct sales firms and their 26.2 million independent salespeople. Joseph serves as Chief Executive Officer of the Association with ultimate responsibility for all association programs and activities. He is charged with providing progressive association, leadership, development, and implementation of association policies in the fields of government, consumer, and international affairs. He has been responsible for representing the association's interests in all 50 state capitals and on Capitol Hill. Joseph also serves as president of the Direct Selling Education Foundation. He is admitted to practice law in the state of Maryland and before the Supreme Court of the United States. He has authored numerous articles and been a contributor to publications on direct selling and government affairs. Enjoy this episode. Everyone, welcome to the Action Catalyst. Uh, this is Dan Moore, and today I have a particular personal privilege. I'm talking to Mr. Joseph Mariano, who is the president of the Direct Selling Association. Uh, for those of you who don't know much about the Direct Selling Association, they are the voice, they are the heart, and they are the spirit of a channel of distribution that involves more than 15 million people making a huge difference in their lives and the lives of their customers. And Joe has been a servant of the industry for many, many years, and we're delighted to pick his brains, learn from his expertise. So, Joe, welcome to the Action Catalyst. Thank you, Dan. It's my pleasure to, to join you for a few minutes and chat about a few things. I, you know, I have a great admiration for you, so I look forward to just a nice dialogue. Yeah, we'll definitely do that. Now, Joe, I believe that you uh, you were born as a lawyer. Is that correct? <laughs> I'm a recovering <laughs> lawyer, as they say. Uh, Sometimes I feel like that. Some of my friends accuse me of uh, putting them on the uh, witness chair sometimes. But uh, yeah, lawyer's a lawyer is a lawyer. Well, we'd love to learn a bit about some of the most significant pivots in your career, things that uh, eventually led you to this amazing position of leadership that you're in today. You know, I'm, I've been fortunate. I've been at the association, the Direct Selling Association, since 1985. And in today's world, it's pretty unusual for anybody to be around 30 plus years in one job. Um, I never expected to be here for that long period of time, but um, I, I grew to love it, uh, made friends like yourself throughout the industry. More importantly, I really felt as though I was able to grow throughout my career here and do a variety of different things. So um, you talk about pivots in the career. I mean, the first point of the career here was to join as a young attorney. Mm -hmm. I came on board as a staff person looking to get involved in Washington, D.C., where we're headquartered in politics and government. And this was a perfect opportunity to do that. Um, I had looked for the opportunity to really serve in government, and this was, I thought, another way of being in a related field. And in fact, that was great because I was able to interact with policymakers and uh, people who were interested and involved in politics um, in a variety of different ways. And then I saw, of course, as I matured and grew into the position, 
that there were a lot of other opportunities in the association to grow and grow my career, to do different things, to be engaged in meeting planning, to write, uh, to, yes, still be a lawyer and work up on Capitol Hill or even at the Supreme Court, um, even as I then began to learn the direct selling business and, and make presentations in front of hundreds, if not thousands of people. Um, so all these things came together over a period of time. I worked for a very long time with uh, a, a person that's now my friend and mentor, uh, Neil Offen, who was president of the association. He, When I joined, he had already been at, at DSA for quite a while. Uh, and then we grew together in our careers. I grew up in DSA and direct selling and under his leadership. When he decided to retire after being at the association for, gosh, 40, 45 years, something like that, many of which had been as president, um, he was gracious enough to suggest me as his successor, and I was able to take that role. Um, Neil retired and left me here uh, for a very challenging period of time for the industry and the association, but it was a wonderful opportunity to further expand my skills, to learn more, um, and as well as take advantage of the things that I had experienced in the previous 20 years or so uh, at the association. So within that period of time, there were many, many changes, which I'm sure we can talk about both within the association and in my personal life, which really informed my process and my growth. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the, the things we have in common besides our love for what direct selling can do for people is we both worked under a very strong and charismatic long-term leader. Yeah. Uh, in my case, it was Jerry Heffel. He was my direct lead for about 30 years, Yeah, very similar to your tenure with Neil. Can you share your insights on, on what it takes to be a very effective number two? In other words, how to keep your ego out of it, how to keep mission first and foremost to help, as somebody once said, swing the boss's ax as necessary, <laughs> uh, be that sounding board, be objective. What, what are your thoughts on that? Because I think we've got a lot of listeners in that role. Well, yeah, you're right. That it is a particularly challenging role in some ways, but I think it's a great role uh, as well. I actually enjoyed it uh, quite a bit. And the reason I enjoyed that role was because it, even while you were supporting your leader, your in my case the president, um it was an opportunity to control, not control, influence and work with him, collaborate in his thinking, but also let him be the risk taker in mm -hmm. terms of presenting the ideas and um, you, or in my case, as myself sitting behind the scenes in a sense, um, having an influence on the policies and the decisions that he was making, um, and yet not having to bear the entire brunt of that, frankly. Um, and that was an advantageous position to be in. On the other hand, it's also a little bit frustrating because I think anybody who, who has any ambition um, really wants to ultimately be the person out there, the person on the playing field, if you will. Uh, in front of the stadium, use a baseball analogy today, since we're in the midst of the World Series as we speak, uh, or the, the championship series. You're and, not really that close to the Nationals, though. <laughs> Across the street, basically. I'm, I'm a Baltimore <laughs> Orioles fan anyway. But yeah, the Nationals are, are right in it, I must say. They're all waiting for the World Series. But yeah, you know, so you really want to be on the field playing. And sometimes you feel like you're in the dugout um, waiting, maybe even to pinch hit. And that can be a little bit of a frustration, but you know that you're having an impact on the game to, to torture the analogy. Um, and so I think that was really quite something. I, I had this discussion recently with regard to another one of our, our companies in the direct selling industry, where the same circumstance as you and I have experienced um, existed. And that was where it wasn't so much working underneath a, a mentor or a leader for so many years, but it was succeeding 
that leader. Mm-hmm. And I, I asked the person who took on this new role as CEO of a huge Fortune 500 corporation, what is it like coming to work every day knowing that you're succeeding a, a 30 plus year legend in the industry? And in fact, not just succeeding that legend, but walking by a bronze larger than life statue standing outside the building which is named for that CEO <laughs> as you walk yeah. into your office, right? And and the person who succeeded uh, this, this legend of their business said, well, you know, at, at, you take advantage of both the wisdom of that person, but you also take advantage of the moment to exercise change and to make sure that you put your own stamp on things, and which is your personal stamp and your personal style. And that if you try to be that person, in my case, if I tried to be Neil Offen, the, the, my, my former president, I wouldn't succeed. Now, I might not succeed as myself either, but I know for sure that if I try to be that person, then it would not be a successful exercise. Right. Yeah, you got to be comfortable in your own skin and still honor the traditions, honor the lessons, honor the learnings, which, which is amazing. Now, well, I'm sh- if, if I can add something. Sure. Because I got a great piece of advice. You know, when I took the, the role here uh, at the association as president, I did a, a listening tour, if you will. I went around the country to various groups of executives within the direct selling business, um, CEOs and others. And I sat down. I, I'll, I'll use his name. I think it's a fair thing to do. I sat down with Doug DeVos, uh, mm-hmm. then president and CEO of the Amway Corporation. Um, Doug, as well, had a somewhat different circumstance. He had succeeded his brother and his father had been uh, co-president, essentially, of that company for many years. A little bit different circumstance when you're dealing with your family members. But he still gave me a, a great piece of advice, which and I've, I've tried to uh, stick to over these years. And that was just be yourself. You know, Don't try to be something in somebody you're not, especially the person who preceded you. Right, right. Now, digging a little bit deeper, knowing Neil and knowing you, I'm sure that there were some spirited disagreements that went on behind closed doors about policy, direction, strategy, et cetera. But once the decision was reached, what do you think is the most important thing for that number two person to do after that? Oh, it's to go out publicly and disagree and make sure that everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Obviously, I'm being facetious. Look, you know, in any policy position, whether it's here in the United States government with the White House and the administration, or whether it's in a business endeavor or not-for-profit trade association like our own, um, you have to recognize the the folks who have been charged with the ultimate decision-making responsibility and authority. Mm -hmm. And I think you're absolutely right. Your question implies the role of the number two or people who are are otherwise uh, in the organization. And that is, you have to be able with behind closed doors to express your opinion and to disagree and disagree strongly. Um, that's your role, not only with your president in my case, but you know, as I deal with the board of directors as well, part of my role as an association executive and president of the association is to serve our membership and our board of directors, our chairman of the board. And I say to each chairman who comes aboard, look, it's, it's part of my job as president to advise you, to let you know where the pitfalls are, and to sometimes say things to you that you may not want to hear. And the model that I use for that in dealing with our chairman of the board is exactly the model that we're talking about when you're a number two um, and dealing with your CEO or your president. Uh, You have to be able to speak honestly. And sometimes that's a very uncomfortable position, notwithstanding that everybody understands or should understand that that's your role. Because it's not easy to disagree, Mm -hmm. right? 
even mm-hmm. when it's a strongly felt point. Um, and it's not easy to say to somebody, I think you're wrong. But to get to your earlier point, it's that much easier when everybody understands that that advice, that counsel is done behind closed doors. And no matter the decision, when it's made, you will support mm-hmm. and will be strongly in support of that decision. Um, honestly, and you have to take that and, and recognize that there's no monopoly on wisdom for any of us, right? Mm-hmm. No matter how strongly I feel about something, it doesn't mean I'm right. <laughs> I may believe that I'm right, but I recognize the authority and the responsibility of the president to make that decision. So that's the approach. Yeah, I think that's awesome because undermining is one of the best ways to destroy an organization in a hurry. Mm-hmm. And the backbiting and the criticism, uh, again, we have to have environments where people are totally free to disagree. But once that a point of decision is reached, we're on board and, yeah. and move forward. Well, not to be too political, but since we are here in Washington, D.C., and you know, this is sort of some of the things that I deal with every day or observe uh, interacting with government, you're absolutely right. I mean, the most destructive thing I think for any a- any government, any administration is just that. And I think that is translatable to business. And you see it, particularly in a government situation frequently. People with their own agendas, their own power power agendas for their, their own self-aggrandizement, they'll leak to the press, they'll agree, but they won't really agree. Mm-hmm. And you're right, it's extraordinarily damaging and destructive. Right. And well, at the family level, the same thing can happen. Like the child says, oh, dad, this is terrible. Oh, I'll work on your mother. It'll be all right. You know, it's like, it's amazing. Now, along the way with so many changes in the industry, because you deal with not only market changes, product changes, technology changes, international changes, and heavily daily regulatory changes. uh, I'm sure there's times that you've been trucking along and you've hit a, a brick wall where you just unexpected, floored, what do we do next? Mm. What are some some coping strategies or thought processes, Joe, that you can share with with me and with our leaders for how to get around those seemingly insurmountable obstacles? Well, the role of an association executive may be may be different than somebody in a for profit corporation, um, or for that matter, in government. I'm, I'm not sure, but I believe that the lessons. Um, that I've absorbed from people in my community here, as well as Neil and, and others over the years, uh, are probably translatable to every situation and every circumstance when you meet that obstacle, that hurdle that you're talking about. And there are tremendous changes over 30 years in any organization, and in our case, any industry uh, that I represent a business model. There have been several, in fact, and we're going through some right now with transitions in the economy and, and the like. First, I'm going to harken back to something I said a moment ago. You have to recognize that you, one, does not have a monopoly on wisdom. Mm. Uh, And as strongly as you might feel about an issue and as experienced and knowledgeable as you may think you are um, in 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 an industry, in my case, or a business, uh, you you don't know everything. You don't know what you don't know, as they say. and, And even when you know it, you can be wrong. And so I think you have to recognize that you, you need to open yourself up to a variety of different thinking and different approaches. Um, and that's a, a somewhat humbling experience, but it's also an empowering experience when you finally recognize that you don't know everything. Mm. And uh, in an association, what one has to do is build consensus and agreement among a diverse set of constituencies. Um, in our case, you know, different types of businesses with different compensation models, different product lines and the like. Uh, and that requires an openness to new ideas and to 
um, get out of sort of the box that you may have put yourself in. And that I think is important when you, particularly important when you face these hurdles. Um, in my instance, right now, I'll use a contemporary example. You mentioned regulation. We're dealing with a somewhat uncertain regulatory environment. And we've been dealing with these questions for years. Uh, and that's been part of my career and part of my job. And yet, I think what we are trying to do now as we face yet a new regulatory challenge or potential regulatory challenge is to say, okay, well, let's start thinking about things differently. Let's not react, I'll use the term autonomically, reflexively, um, because that's the way we reacted the last 10, 15, 30 years. Let's make sure we're evaluating our own reactions, our own beliefs, before we kind of just fall into that pattern. Because if the pattern hasn't been successful, if what you've done in the past has not allowed you to respond as effectively as you would like to respond, then I think you need not only to stop beating your head against that wall and being depressed about it, you need to think about, okay, what can we do differently? Hmm. How might we change our position? How might we change our strategy? That seems self-evident, but I, I think it's harder for people to do once they've gotten to a position of, of authority or power. In my instance, we talked about being here 30 years and you've been at, at your position for quite a while as well, and certainly with the company quite a while. And one of the things that I've found that is the most challenging is to force myself out of a pattern of thinking Hmm. and a pattern of behavior. Well, you know, we did that back in 1985 and it didn't work. Uh, Well, we tried that strategy. Yeah, that's a great idea, but no, it's not going to work. I I don't think you can allow yourself to fall into that kind of a pattern and rut. Um, Again, perhaps it's self-evident, and identifying that challenge is the first first thing that you must do. Mm-hmm. But then once you've identified it, you've got to work against it. And I'm sorry to go on about this, but I've been talking about it to some of my colleagues here uh, in, in the association, as well as to some of our members as we sort of figure out our strategy going forward. I think another thing to do is to make sure that you, as the CEO, are open to that kind of thinking and challenge from your internal colleagues. Um, that we were talking about before when you are the CEO or the number two. And I've tried to do that with uh, opening myself up as much as possible to the various people on staff, but also to bringing in newer, younger people Hmm. who perhaps have a different way of thinking. Again, they're not always right. And in your role as CEO and president, you're the one that has to make that decision. But if you open yourself up, uh, to that kind of thinking and those kinds of options, then I think you deal with those hurdles much more effectively uh, and get out of your own funk. That's fantastic. Well, Spencer Hayes often said, nobody has a monopoly on intelligence, but <laughs> some people can have a monopoly on stupidity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think it was, uh, that's absolutely true, believe me. Uh, I felt that way myself frequently. I think it was Charles de Gaulle, if I'm not mistaken, who said the uh, uh, the graveyards are full of indispensable men. And, uh, you know, you just have to recognize that no matter what your position is, you're not indispensable. And um, everybody leaves. Uh, They leave their position. They leave this world. And um, we have to recognize that. And that's empowering in this sense because it allows you to take advantage of the skills and intelligence uh, of the people around you. And that's the way to deal with those hurdles. It's the only way. Yeah, that makes so much sense because when the mission is right, it transcends any individual. Yeah. 
And the whole mission of direct selling is about empowering people to make a difference in their lives and the lives of the people they they encounter on a daily basis, which yeah. is phenomenal. Um, Joe, I'm going to take a totally different direction for a second. You are extremely busy. There's a lot of demands on your time. And yet you somehow make time for your own passion of theater. Uh, you spend time on the stage. You uh, How do you uh, how do you balance things out so that you can have those renewing external experiences while still meeting up to the responsibilities of a very big job? That's a great question. Um, well, first of all, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I'm in a position in my life. I just turned 61. And uh, so my kids are all grown. Uh, pretty much out of the house for the most part and living their own lives on, on their, on their own. So uh, that, I don't want to call it a burden, but that, uh, that time mm-hmm. commitment is, is less. So that gives me the opportunity to do a little bit more. And of course I have to work around my travel schedule and the like to make sure that the activities that I can do on stage uh, fit with my, my primary responsibilities. But I will say this too, that the beauty of, of doing something like that in my case um is that I'm able to translate the skills that I hone uh, using drama and theater into what we do. Uh, much of what we do in direct selling, and certainly I do as association president, is public facing. And so you, you're a great presenter. I've seen you present and discuss, and I know you speak in front of hundreds, indeed thousands of, of your Southwest folks and others. Um, and that kind of skill set is extraordinarily important to persuade people, to bring them along, to provide them the kind of evidence that we try to provide in our case that things are going right and that we're doing the right thing as an industry and the like. And so to be able to take those skills from the theater and translate them to a board meeting um, where you're convincing a smaller group of people or you're working with a smaller group of people or literally hundreds and thousands of people out in an auditorium that you're speaking to as you're trying to motivate them, convince them, um, and, and make them feel good about themselves is extraordinary. The other thing I would say, though, um, and, and this is important from my perspective, I'm in a play right now, in fact, um, and uh, it's about individuals who are facing challenges and how they deal with those challenges and how they accommodate changes in their lives and, and struggles, some of the same things that we're talking about here. And I think what's what's good about what we do is that we face so many issues and challenges as a business model, as businesses, but we also interact with so many people whose stories are so inspiring that they had their own challenges and their own, their own problems that they had to deal with, both inside the direct selling business, but also outside. And to be able to learn from those folks, to see and be inspired by them and how they've overcome, in many cases, their own challenges or dealt with those challenges, both be on a personal level, but also using the skills and, and the activities of their direct selling business, that actually informs my performances. Hmm. Um, so I think it's a two-way street. You know, you, you take advantage of that um, in terms of bringing those skills to the, the business world, but you also take your personal experience in the business world and use that to inform your performance. On a more personal level, I would say, you know, that kind of release for me is extraordinarily important. Um, we have to be controlled in our business setting. Uh, doesn't mean you're not yourself and that you don't exercise and express your passion, but nonetheless, you're working in a professional business environment. Whereas on your on the stage, you can be anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do anything. Uh, you can be uh, you can be Atticus Finch. 
You can be Beethoven. You can be a Nazi Gestapo officer, which happens to be my most current role. Um, you can basically do anything you want and express yourself without reservation. And that's that's a nice release. For me, it's a lot better than playing around round of golf. Not that there's anything wrong with golf. And I know a lot of people take out their frustrations in golf. <laughs> I've seen them. <laughs> yes. Well, it's the only sport that's spelled backwards is flog. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, when my wife decided it was time we got a grand piano, somebody said, isn't that expensive? And I was playing at the time and she said, yes, but it's a lot cheaper than a shrink. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, in my case, I have a grand piano too, would I? But I think I probably still need the shrink because I cannot play that grand piano. <laughs> well, Joe, let me ask you one more. The American dream, is, is it dead? Mm. Boy, what a question. You know, you want the answer to be uh, absolutely not. The, the embodiment of the American dream is direct selling. Mm -hmm. And I, I do believe that. That is my answer. Mm -hmm. But I also want to be realistic because I think we're in um, an interesting and challenging time as a country, as a business model, frankly, in the world. We've got so many, so many challenges, right? Uh, so many things that we've got to deal with. And I think it has to do with really even redefining in a sense, what the American dream needs to be. The American dream, in my view, is not a mansion uh, in Palm Beach. It's not a yacht. It's not a Mercedes Benz or three or four in your, your big garage. To my view, the American dream is contributing, doing something that you want to do, having an impact on people's lives around you, having an impact in the community that you live in contributing in a way that puts everyone in a little bit better place. And in that sense, I think there's always an opportunity for the American dream. You know, my grandfather came over from Italy in 1918 with $12 in his pocket. Hmm. Cliche story, right? He was a tailor for his entire life, worked in a tailoring shop, met his wife there. She worked in a tailoring shop. They worked for 50 plus years before they retired, before he went back to Italy for the first time and only time in his life to see his family again. That was a version of the American dream and achievable no place except in the United States of America. I think we have a different opportunity for a different kind of dream now. We've reached a level of affluence as a country, um, notwithstanding the challenges that we still have. And so we have to redefine that dream to empower all of us and financially, personally, and in terms of being able to contribute to our community. And I will say this unabashedly, and forgive me for going on because I am passionate about mm -hmm. this, even as we redefine the American dream. The people that I see almost day in and day out, whose lives have been transformed by direct selling, who have embraced their version of the American dream, is the most awe-inspiring thing that I can imagine. You know, as much as I respect you, Dan, and uh, and people like Spencer Hayes and, and others that I've met throughout the industry at the CEO and president level and Harvard graduates, wonderful stories. And I don't take anything away from any of those. The most inspiring people that I've ever met is the single mother from Mexico City who immigrated 15 years ago and had no set of, of discernible skills uh, on which she could survive who have prospered by coming to the United States. It's the, the, the other single mother who may have 
lost her husband through divorce or death and didn't know how she was going to survive, who had been a stay-at-home working mother and now was faced with the challenge of raising two kids um, and had to figure out how that was going to work. And in order to develop the skills that she needed to have, she went to direct selling and it turned into something extraordinarily successful for her. It's the athlete who who decided to take his passion for nutrition and and sell it to literally and figuratively to the people in his community and have empowered those people because he didn't become the NFL athlete that he thought he was going to become. But instead, he built a sales business and he has literally hundreds of people working with him now selling this uh, vision of nutrition that he happens to have and improving people's lives, both with the product and with the opportunity that he's dealing with. So you've got this wide gradient of people who are experiencing their own version of the American dream. And it doesn't have to do with that that Rolls Royce mm-hmm. necessarily. It has to do with bettering themselves, bettering their community, bettering the people around them. Um, and that's a great, great thing to see. Um, we do it often. You know, we have uh, Direct Selling Day on Capitol Hill here in Washington, D.C. And we'll bring in 100, 200 distributors, salespeople from a variety of companies. And more importantly, not only from a variety of companies, we've got people who've earned, who knows, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars by building sales organizations, very small percentage, really, of the people who are engaged in direct selling. Uh, but we've got the more typical and, and frankly, the more representatives uh, mm-hmm. persons who who are modest sellers, uh, but have used this to transform their lives and enjoy it with a great deal of passion. And they tell their stories to these senators and congressmen up on Capitol Hill here. And I must tell you, that's the most persuasive story uh, that those folks hear. And to a man and woman, um, those members of Congress are extraordinarily impressed by those stories. So they're inspired too. Uh, When we come to Capitol Hill Day, uh, I make a point of lining those 150, 200 people up on the steps of the Capitol. And we, we say the Pledge of Allegiance. And each year, we've done this six or seven years now, each year, by the time we get to the end of that pledge, there are tears in many eyes of the people who are standing on those steps. And uh, frequently, there are tears in my eyes, because no matter how cynical we get, no matter how jaded we get about whether the opportunity for the American dream is still there, whether the United States government is working properly, when you're standing on those steps and you're looking down the mall to the Washington Monument and the flags are flying around you and you say the Pledge of Allegiance, just like you did when you were in the fifth or sixth grade, it's hard not to believe in the American dream. Joe, thank you. Thank you for that. I can't imagine a more uplifting and inspirational ending. Uh, the time with you flies, my friend. <laughs> but, well, how long we've we been on? About three, four hours, something like that? Yeah. <laughs> couple of days. I, I got to um, tell you, Dan, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. You know, I could talk about uh, direct selling for hours and frequently do. Some people say I go on a little bit too long, but but to be able to share some of, of this perspective with you, I really appreciate the, the opportunity. Well, thank you for your openness and, and your heart. It makes such a difference. And listeners, uh, we're grateful to have Joseph here and spend the time with us. 101 years ago is when your grandfather came from Italy. It's yeah. just an amazing story. It is. It is. And being married to an immigrant, um, I am completely on board with everything that you just had to say. Yeah. So, Joe, on behalf of us and all of our listeners in the Action Catalyst, thank you for all that you do and above all for who you are. Thanks, Dan. 
If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.